around us, and they kind of came to a, a reality that I think is helpful for, for many of us to come to, is that we actually don't share the gospel very much. <laughs> we actually don't really share the gospel at all, and if we won't share the gospel with people we don't know, maybe the best place to start is by learning to share the gospel with people we do know, right? And so uh, at 6 o'clock tonight, they're coming in here, and they're just going to practice sharing their story and sort of sharing the gospel with each other. And it'll be really informal. It's just they were doing it, and uh, I wanted to make everyone aware of it. So if you're like, man, I kind of fit into that category, and I've got some time this evening at 6, 6 o'clock here uh, at the church. We'd love to have you. Um, if it goes well, if it's helpful, uh, these are the sorts of things we'll continue to do in the future. Uh, the second announcement's exciting as well. As you walked in, you may or may not have seen uh, we've got a new bathroom downstairs uh, updated and uh, a lot nicer. And the volunteer room beside of that, we've uh, completely redone that room as well as a space for our volunteers to, to work, to gather, to get stuff done, to get stuff organized, to serve the body well. And so this year in 2020, as we're pushing our, our members, our regulars towards consistency in, in all things, we want to make targeted improvements to uh, the space, our systems, our ministry operations as a whole, so that we can sort of put some muscle behind that consistency that, that God's people are bringing day in, day out, week in and week out. So uh, I hope you enjoy the new bathroom. I hope you enjoy uh, the new volunteer room. Um, yeah, so that's that. So those are my two announcements. Um, you know, bad things happen to me like they do everybody. Uh, normal bad things, and I'm talking in terms of like uh, home repairs, right? Um, HVAC at my house went out twice, a new one, and then it went out. Um, the roof has had problems. Our siding isn't very nice. And so when, when things happen, we have to get it fixed. And then odd bad things happen to me. Like, bad things will often happen to me that they don't happen to other people. Like, uh, we went out of town on a conference, and we came back, and I went to get my truck at the Fort Hill Park and Ride. Some of you may remember this. And I, I start it, and it's like, no gas. And I'm like, this is weird. What's going on? And then I start to look, and I see, like, a stream of what was some sort of liquid that had been on the ground around my truck. And... I have just enough fumes to get it down to our uh, car dealership, the well, I guess Ball Toyota there on, on Patrick Street, and we, we look at my gas tank and, and some knucklehead had gotten under the truck and drilled a hole in the gas tank. And I'm like, what in the world, why in the world for a little bit of gas would you drill a hole in the gas tank. And so that was odd. And so I had to pick up my phone and I had to call my cousin and, and insurance agent and say, listen, man, this is what happened. Are we, is this covered? Uh, a funny story as a little aside to that. I'm going through my Facebook spam messages uh, one day recently and I find a, a message from a reporter from Channel 13 News. It's like, hi, Mason, I saw your Facebook post about your gas tank getting drilled into. Would you like to go on the news and talk about it? I was like, no. I mean, imagine, like, turning on the news, and y'all see in my mug, and it's like, underneath my name, it's like, victim of Charleston gas tank driller. I'm like, come I don't want to be the pastor who got his truck's gas tank drilled for the rest of my life. Oh, yeah, I saw that guy on TV. Yeah, he looked like an idiot. And I'll also add this, just for those of you, you know, I, it happened at the Fort Hill Park and Ride which is up in South Hills. I live on the west side. I was like, oh, I can't leave my car there. I'm like, well, you realize I've never had that happen to me in my neighborhood on the west side. 
I go up y'all's way one time, one time, and I come back with a new gas tank. And then Jenny, our dog, the Chuggle, Chihuahua, Pug, Beagle mix, no one knows what she is, we just throw it all together, Chuggle. And she chews through the supply line of the toilet in the upstairs bathroom, which I didn't even know you could do. And so Holly's out of town, it's like our first weekend, well, first weekend being married that I'm in home and she's not. And so Jenny chews through the supply line, I'm in the shower getting ready for church, it's a Sunday morning, I just lose all water pressure completely. And I'm like, that's odd. I don't know what's going on. Of course, I still kind of take my time because I'm not going to hurry, you know, nice hot shower. And so then I get out, and I just hear rushing water, man, like, shh. And I get to the upstairs bathroom, and I open the door, and Jenny comes surfing out on this wall of water because she had chewed through the supply line. And so what do I do? I get the phone, and I, I call my cousin, the insurance agent. Rusty, it's me. I, good news, the gas tank has not been drilled through. Bad news, there's water everywhere. Like, water's gone through the ceiling, water's gone down the steps, water's gotten in the floors of the downstairs uh, kitchen area. This is an absolute mess. So every time I'm victimized by someone drilling a hole in my truck's gas tank or my crazy dog chewing a hole in a supply line, I call my cousin Rusty, the insurance agent. And when he answers the phone, we have a really good relationship, but he kind of knows something bad's going on. He sees it's Mason calling out. He's going to need something because unfortunately, maybe like I should, I don't just call and check in on him. Sometimes I think we treat God like our insurance agent cousin. We tend to pray when we need something. Now, let me say this from the jump. I could easily imply guilt here, right? That well, You didn't pray when things were good, so why would you pray when things are bad? That's how we work. That's not how God works. Like, we get frustrated when people only call us when they need something, but God doesn't get frustrated with us because God's not petty and prideful like we are. God's always ready and always willing and always happy to hear from his children. So we should certainly turn to God when we absolutely need him. But often when we set out to pray or when we think about prayer, there's an unspoken list of priorities. The first priority is the immediate. We're often in some sort of a mess that we need God to get us out of. Or whatever's on our mind, generally dealing with ourselves, maybe um, family tensions, work drama, um, et cetera, et cetera. That first thing on our mind that's, that's impacting our lived realities, we bring it to God. And then after we've kind of worked through that, we consider the world around us and sort of these concentric circles that are expanding outwards, right? You've got, got to pray for, you know, wife, kids, grandma, grandpa, whatever sort of immediate family uh, you have. Pray for our church. Pray for the neighbors. Pray for your friends who don't know God. Pray for issues and problems broadly. Pray for drug addiction, homelessness, peace in the Middle East. I mean, you fill in the blank. And we work out and we're praying for this really large world. And, and then after we've prayed for ourselves, our immediate need, after we've prayed for sort of the world around us, working out to the, the general, we may get a vague sense that not only is there a larger world out there, but there's a larger God out there who knows all things, who created the whole world. And then if we linger there for a moment, we may learn that he's more than our cosmic cleanup crew, our cosmic cousin Rusty. I'm going to have to have him listen to this sermon. He'll enjoy the intro. 
It's an excuse to reach out for him when there's not a disaster. See, we're making progress. He is a living God. He's the creator and ruler of all. And as we fix our hearts and minds on this great God who rules over this great world, we may find our priorities turned upside down. Our understanding of prayer and navigating this life we live, less about our name, our will, and our kingdom, and more about his name, his will, and his kingdom. Now, the Lord's prayer helps us flip those priorities upside down. The Lord's prayer helps us engage with God and engage the world around us, engage him for our needs in right priorities while facing honestly the realities of our life. Our main idea this morning is that Jesus orients our prayers to the Father he situates our prayers within God's kingdom, and he teaches us to pray in faith, trusting God to meet our physical and spiritual needs. Let me say that again. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus orients our prayers to the Father. That's the first idea we'll explore. The second idea we'll explore is that Jesus situates our prayers within God's kingdom. And third, Jesus teaches us to pray in faith, trusting God with all our needs, both physical and spiritual. Look with me in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. Again, like we said last week, when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. In the first week of the sermon series, that little phrase, do not be like them, I jumped ahead to that and I shared that because one of the ways you can sum up the Sermon on the Mount is that command, don't be like them. Jesus shows us the religion of the day. Jesus shows us as how that's expressed amongst the Gentiles, not just amongst the Pharisees. And essentially, the Sermon on the Mount is a call to a, a Christian counterculture, a, a Jesus way of living. It's not like them, and it's not like them, but it's how God calls us to live. Don't be like them is a command that we could hear over and over and over through this entire series. Now, Jesus has already brought a stinging rebuke of the Pharisees' desire to be seen as spiritual. As we saw last week, God is not interested in performative prayers. God's not looking at the guy who stands up every week during testimony time at church and gives the same long rambling prayers so that everyone in the fellowship knows how spiritual he is. God's not impressed by the person who puts the long, drawn-out prayers on Facebook for everybody to see so that they can know how spiritual they are. When you pray, Jesus teaches, go into your room and shut the door and pray in private because your power isn't in your influence when you pray. Your power is in your connection to God. Now, Jesus turns to the content of false and ungodly prayers, the sorts of prayers that his disciples had seen or heard from pagan nations, from Gentiles, those who are outside the covenant family of God, those who would follow uh, idols and different false gods. When you heap up empty phrases, when you just mindlessly babble, you are acting like the pagans who think they will be heard for their many words. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard. Why? 
for their many words. Don't be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray like this, and the Lord's Prayer will follow. Why do the Gentiles pray with their many words? So that they will be heard. The way they pray flows from their theology. They must be loud and consistent, or they must pray the exact right formula over and over again as a sort of incantation to get their God's attention and to tell their God something that was up to that point unknown by their God so that their God can take that new information and then act in whatever way they deem necessary. I think a little bit about, you know, when you're walking into a Hindu temple, right, there's a a bell that you'll ring. And, and why do you ring that bell? To, to wake up the gods and, and let them know that you're there. So you'll walk in, you'll hear somebody, they'll go up and they'll, you know, they'll ring the bell and then they'll approach the altar to make sure their god is awake. And so it's logical that prayer has this sort of incantation-like element by which you're heaping up empty phrases, you're saying what your god wants to hear in, in your own mind so that your god will be made aware of your needs so that your God will hear you, so that your God will care, and he'll know how to act, and then he'll share them. Jesus, underneath all of this, is teaching your God is not like the pagan gods. Your God don't need anybody to give him a wake-up call. He's awake. He sees. He knows. You don't have to pray a certain formula. You don't have to say the right thing. You don't have to say it loud enough for God to hear. That explains the placement of verse 8. Don't be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. There are two broad types of relationships. There's transactional relationships, and there's covenantal or familial relationships. There are more, but for the sake of this sermon, humor me and We'll say there are two. There's transactional and there's familial or, or covenantal. A transactional relationship is, is a, an employee and an employer, a landlord and a lessee, a doctor and a patient. Any relationship where there's some sort of transactions of, of services, of goods, whether that's monetary, whether that's, you know, I'll do this and they'll do this. Um, and when that implicit exchange or explicit exchange is not happening, that relationship uh, is terminated, or that relationship is impacted negatively. And then in a covenantal or familial relationship, you think of uh, a family bond, a father-son, a husband and wife, as God ordains, even, dare I say, church member and church. Though what we've done is we've taken that out of covenantal familial and we've made that transactional because we've made church a marketplace rather than a family. But that's a whole other sermon series than this one. A covenantal relationship, a familial relationship, is not based on an exchange of ideas, an exchange of goods, an exchange of services. It's not transactional. It's based on a positional reality. For instance, I am the son of Gary and Melissa Ballard. Until the day I die, I will be the son of Gary and Melissa Ballard. 
if I decide that I'm going to ruin my life and do something crazy and stupid and then run away and pretend that none of y'all exist and that they don't exist, it doesn't matter. I'm still the son of Gary and Melissa Ballard. This transactional relationship and this familial relationship gives us a helpful dichotomy, a helpful way of thinking about how the Gentiles think about God and how Jesus is teaching his disciples to think about God. They have to pray in their mindless babble. They have to work up their incantations. They have to say just the right things so that they can do this, and then their God in that transaction provides this. But Jesus is saying, God's not like that. You have a what? Father in heaven who knows what you need before you even ask him. We don't approach our knowledge of God transactionally. We approach it covenantally. Jesus doesn't come to teach us a way to a transactional God. Jesus comes to make a way into a covenant with God. Don't be like them. Your God is not transactional. He's not looking for the exact right spell. Your Father knows what you need. He sees you. He cares. Rather than disincentivizing prayer, as some may argue at face value, this incentivizes prayer. God knows us. He sees us. He loves us. He knows what we need. He's ready for us to simply ask. Jesus, the Son of God, come to earth, is extending familial rights to his disciples. God is not a, a distant, detached deity. He is an ever-present Father. I love this quote from N.T. Wright about calling God Father. When we call God Father, we are called to step out as apprentice children into a world of pain and darkness. We will find that darkness all around us. It will terrify us, precisely because it will remind us of the darkness inside our own selves. The temptation then is to switch off the news, shut out the pain of the world, to create a painless world for ourselves. A good deal of our contemporary culture is designed to help us do exactly that. No wonder people find it hard to pray. But if, as the people of the living Creator God, we respond to the call to be His sons and daughters, if we take the risk of calling Him Father, then we are called to be the people through whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of God. What a beautiful sentence. If we would take the risk of calling God Father, then we are the people who will take the pain of the world that we feel in us and we see around us, and we are the ones who hold that up to the love of God. And we discover that we want to pray and we need to pray like this. The Father to whom we pray is also the God who rules in heaven, who is bringing his kingdom to heal that darkness. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this, verse 9 begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, we address our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of our culture, to conform to the self-centeredness of our pseudo-Christian culture. Our sinful hearts are even bent in that direction. We become concerned with our little name, our little kingdom, and our little plans. We become obsessed and consumed with our little name, our little kingdom, and our little plans. I want people to like me. I have this goal for my life, and then these plans are how I'm going to achieve this goal, and I'm willing to pray as long as the prayers line up with my name, my kingdom, my will. But Jesus is not teaching us that we would make our name known. Jesus is not teaching that our kingdom would be realized. Jesus is not teaching that our will will be done in every situation we encounter. I think a lot of our prayers look like that. God, this is what I want. I'm going to name and claim and believe that you're going to do this when really we're not praying in the manner and the spirit that Jesus has taught us to pray. Jesus is teaching us for God's name to be made known, not ours, for God's kingdom to come, not ours, and for God's will to be done perfectly, not ours. Hallowed be your name over all the earth. God, we pray, right, that, that everyone everywhere would hear the news of Jesus, the Son of God, who's come to seek and save the lost, and that in him is the redemption of all things, that he is your plan, God, for the redemption of all things, that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. As we recited in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the life everlasting. God, our heart's desire is that your name would be made known over all the earth more than anything else. That's what we want. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom comes down in a sense. God's kingdom comes in a sense when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In Revelation, we have that picture of the up there coming down here. It is God's world coming to our world, that heavenly city of Revelation descending from above. Once again, um, N.T. Wright on praying for God's kingdom to come. I've read uh, three books sort of preparing for this, and uh, he just had a few really, really good lines. When praying for God's kingdom to come, he says, we are praying as Jesus was praying and acting for the redemption of the world, for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil, and for heaven and earth to be married at last. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying and acting for the redemption of the world, for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil, and for heaven and earth to be married at last, for God to be all in all. And if we will pray this way, we must be prepared to live this way. Our lives begin to make sense 
when we begin to understand them in the context of who God is and what God's doing in the world around us. When we understand God's agenda for all things, that He is redeeming all things, He's restoring all things, He's bringing His way of life to earth, and ultimately in the eschaton and the end of all things, God's kingdom will be on earth and all will be right. When we understand that grand narrative, we understand our lives differently. Meaning we might pray less, God, just heal me, and more, God, come heal me that through you I may be a healer in a broken and hurting world that you've called me to love because you love. Our lives begin to make sense when we understand them in the context of God's kingdom agenda. Your will be done here as it is in heaven. In my life, in our life, and in the world around us, God, let your will be done perfectly, just like it is in heaven. In our prayers, we seek the will of God for our lives and for the world around us. We start with who God is. He's our Father who is in heaven, who reigns above all things. We understand what he's doing in the world around us, at least the broad strokes of it. And we ask that we carry out his will as we live out our station in God's kingdom. We begin to pray for God's name to be made known, for God's kingdom to be built, and for God's plans to prosper. And we ask him to lead us and guide us as we live under his rule and reign. Jesus has taught us to pray to our Father in heaven. He has oriented our prayers to God the Father. Jesus has taught us to pray your kingdom come. He has situated our prayers in God's kingdom. And finally here in verses 11 through 13, Jesus teaches us to rely on God for our physical and spiritual needs. Look with me in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, hallowed be your name over the, all the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the pyramid is sort of inverting here, praying specifically for ourselves, our own needs. Give us this day our daily bread. I think it's worth noting the us in our language throughout the whole prayer. This doesn't mean there's no place for private prayer at all. I mean, you can't, you can't draw that conclusion if you read the New Testament as a whole. But it does help us correct an overcorrection of over-individualizing everything. Give us this day our bread. Meaning if I have bread, but you don't have bread, and we're together and praying, give us this day our daily bread, you better have bread. You see what I'm saying? Because God's given me bread, and we're both praying for our daily bread, and you ain't got any bread. God's answering his prayer, and the thing that might keep you from getting yours would be my own selfishness. That as God's teaching his disciples, he's not just teaching individual people lessons to go apply on their own. He's teaching individual people how to live the kingdom life together. So it's 
a helpful distinction to notice that it's not just give me this day my daily bread, it's give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is even here teaching us to live by faith, live in constant reliance, constant dependence on God our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say, Father, give us enough bread for our whole life. (laughs) Give us enough bread for the rest of the week, the rest of the month. He says, give us this day. Give us this day our daily bread. We'll preach very, very soon about being anxious about nothing. That God knows what you need before you even ask him, as we've read today. God knows what you need. He knows you need clothing. He knows you need food. He's going to provide for you. I think he's teaching us to live somewhat simply as well. He's asking for daily bread. It's not the most decadent of requests. God, give me what I need. Give me what I need to survive. Give me the staple of the diet of the day. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and All these other things will be added to you. Give us this day, Father, our daily bread. Give us what we need to make it through this day. More than just give us what we need to make it through this day, give us what we need to fulfill your will in this day. Give us what we need to live and to love and to serve as citizens of your kingdom this day. Now, Jesus also teaches to pray for our spiritual needs to be met. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When Jesus teaches us to pray to forgive us our debts, that we may forgive our debtors, forgive us our debts as we extend forgiveness to our debtors. This isn't an ongoing justification, right? Jesus isn't teaching that, that once God's forgiven you, you have to ask for him to forgive you every week or every day or every time you sin, because if you like sin and then have a car crash and, and die, then if you haven't confessed it yet, you're, you're not going to be in heaven. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all, that when you're forgiven by God, you're forgiven by God, your slate is wiped clean. He is above time and space, and he sees it all transpire, and every one of your sins are nailed to the cross. But Jesus is teaching for an ongoing restoring of intimacy with God that is lost when our hearts are clouded by sin. I go back to it over and over. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. We cannot see God when our hearts are impure, when we're turning to sin. So as we turn from sin, we're trusting that God is renewing and restoring fellowship and intimacy with us day in and day out as we are extending that forgiveness that we've received to those around us. And God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, God certainly doesn't tempt us with evil. He doesn't entice us with evil as the enemy does, but God certainly guides our lives. God certainly orders our steps. When Jesus walked through the wilderness in temptation, he was led there 
by God. He wasn't outside the will of God while he was in the wilderness. This prayer is that God would lead us away from the enemy, that God would not let us stumble, that God would not let us fall, that God would keep us near him as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that God would keep us near him as we trod through difficulties and trials. Don't let us stumble. Don't let us fall. Deliver us from the evil one. Again, I look at the corporate language, not just don't let me fall. Deliver me from temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. I want to take a moment and remind us that there's no guarantee that we're going to finish our race well. There's no guarantee that my life will just go on and I'll just continue growing in my faith and I'll just be a, a shining beacon for all to see for the rest of my life. That is a gross overestimation of myself. I need thee every hour. Oh, I need thee every hour. That if we will finish the race that God has called us to run well, we need God's sustaining grace every moment of every day. Are we praying for that? Are we praying that God would lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil? If not, perhaps we certainly should be. And then at the end of the prayer, here again, Jesus warns us about the dangers of external righteousness only in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is saying, don't start thinking that what I'm teaching is that all you have to do when you pray is say, oh God, would you please forgive me my sins? And then when you stop praying, go over here and hate your brothers and sisters again. Jesus is saying that kind of righteousness that separates the, the internal from the external, that separates the real from the spoken and what I say, that's not how God intends us to live. So if you leave a prayer like that and you still got beef with your brother or sister, then you're not understanding the grace that you're experiencing. The grace is the air we breathe in and it's the air we breathe out. Even here, Jesus is teaching that the Father is not interested in our platitudes. He's not interested in you just saying the right things. He's interested in you submitting to his rule and living the right way. Don't separate what you say you believe. And don't separate even how you pray from how you live. Don't separate how you pray from how you live. We are breathing in forgiveness and breathing out forgiveness. We are living the life of God and extending the life of God. We are experiencing grace and we are extending grace. Prayer is a part of the righteous life. Prayer is not a substitute for the righteous life. So God, today, give us all we need physically and spiritually to live your way. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Give us the things we need for sustenance. And keep us near your heart. Forgive us our debts, God, as we forgive those around us. And lead me today. Lead us today. Not to temptation, but lead us to your heart. Deliver us from the evil one. And send us where you've called us to be. Father, give us this day all we need to live your way. Uh, Nate, if you want to come on up as we work to a close. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, I, I was, I'm not going to lie, I was intimidated by this sermon because there's so many great resources on the Lord's Prayer. And, and frankly, there are so many ways that I wanted to take this sermon or, or could have taken this sermon. And it's, it's frustrating because it's like, man, there's so many things I, I want to say, could say, and my notes were way, way, way longer than the sermon itself. But as we land the plane, um, I was ref reflecting on our desire. You know, we all want to pray better. You know what I mean? Like, no one, I mean, very, very few people that I've ever talked to, when I ask them, when we're talking about the experience of the Christian life, they say, you know what, prayer is that thing, I, I do it really well. Like, I just rock prayer, man. I don't hear that very much. 99 times out of 100, maybe 100 times out of 100, I hear, man, I just struggle with prayer. Prayer's hard. I, I, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I, I don't really always feel that different. I, I don't know what to say. My posture, I don't, I don't know. And we want quick fixes. We want silver bullets. And there is space for advice on prayer, the mechanics of prayer. But I think advice on prayer only comes after a reorientation to prayer. So this morning we didn't have a lot of advice on how to pray, different types of prayers, even necessarily using this as a guide, which is really helpful to do. This morning was a reorientation to prayer. It's a paradigm shift. It's away from a transactional God to a covenantal God. It's away from praying for my name to be known, for his name to be known away from praying for my kingdom to come and my will to prosper to his kingdom to come and, and his will to prosper. Away from decadence and away from praying in such a way that insulates us from a life of faith. But a way of praying that leans into a life of faith. Knowing that if God doesn't provide my needs, I don't get provided. I have to trust him day in and day out. It's away from rose-colored glasses that hide from our realities and understand that God's plan is to bring light to that brokenness reality. And when we call God Father, we are His children, holding up these realities of a broken world and shining them in the light, the healing light of God. The Pharisees pray so that other people can see them. The Gentiles pray to let their God know that they need to wake up and get to work. But the Christian prays for God's name to be hallowed, God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done here, just like it is in heaven, and that we would have all we need to be all about that. So let's pray that way. 
Let's pray how Jesus teaches us to pray. Not how the Pharisees pray, not how the Gentiles pray, but we pray to a loving Father who is the ruler of all. Let's pray. Let's do it. Let's pray. Let's stop talking about it and let's pray. God, help us stop treating you like our family members and friends that we call when we need something. Help us stop treating you like a cosmic vending machine. I want peace, I'll put a quarter in. I want joy, I'll put a quarter in. I want these things, God. You know what we need. You know what we want. You're a giver of all good gifts. Father, help us see you as you are. Help us desire above all things for your name to be made known. Help us stop thinking how you can make our lives just better. But help us start thinking how we can lay our lives down to see your kingdom come. God, here's our prayer this morning. May your kingdom come and your will be done in Charleston, West Virginia, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And as the scribes would later add, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory, now and forever. Spend a couple of moments in reflection on prayer, asking God to reorient your prayers, and join me in a moment at the Lord's table.